We come this morning in 1 Samuel 15 to Saul's third and his decisive folly. We already saw his impatient sacrifice at Gilgal, for which he was told he will, he will not have a dynasty. Though at that point, Saul personally was not rejected. <coughs> and then last week, we looked at his unwise and reckless vow. And this morning, we come to the event which does lead to his personal rejection. This scene is the straw which breaks the camel's back. And though he will remain on the throne for a long time, after this text, Saul is illegitimate. And he fights this long and tragic and losing battle with God and with David from this point on in the narrative. And we'll look at the text under three headings. They're on the back inside page of the bulletin. Vengeance, obedience, repentance. So first, vengeance. Samuel tells Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king. So, listen. So listen now. Anointing is for listening, Saul. Kingship is is for listening. No listening, no kingship. No listening, no discipleship. Listening is very demanding activity because it requires death to oneself. It requires giving attention, if you will, to the person or to the thing or to the text which is in front of us. And this word for listen, which can also be translated obey, Where you see the word obey in this text, you could substitute listen. It's used eight times in the passage. So listening, this demanding listening, is the thread which holds the whole scene together. We've already seen this, right? On multiple occasions, Samuel binds the monarchy, binds Saul and the kings to obedient, to listening to the word of God. And here... He issues a fresh command. It's a scandalous command to modern sensibilities. The Lord is going to exact vengeance on the Amalekites. They were a people who attacked Israel when they came out of Egypt, even before they got into Sinai. Right? And there's a kind of permanent warfare between them and Israel. And so here we are some 300 years after that, and they are still acting viciously in opposition to Israel. We know this from that gruesome scene at the end of the text where Samuel puts Agag, the king of the Amalekites, to death. In some translations it says Samuel hacked Agag to death. But what he says to him before he executes him is an insight into the Amalekite regime. He says, as your sword has made women childless, so your mother shall be made childless among women. They are still guilty under the current king of shedding innocent blood, essentially of war crimes. In fact, hundreds of years after this, in the book of Esther, some of you may remember this, it is Haman, an Agagite, a descendant of this guy, We are repeatedly told, Haman seeks the annihilation of Israel. 
He wants to kill every last Jew. So with Amalek, this is the situation. Kill them or be killed. And thus the command to Saul to go and attack the Amalekites, to destroy everything that belongs to them, to not spare them. This form of warfare, this kind of total holy war, was common in the ancient Near East. I'm not going to try and unpack it here today except to say this. There's a whole sermon on this in the series on Joshua. So if you can get to the website and go back and look for a sermon on Joshua entitled Holy War, you can learn all about it. So here I just want to be brief. Right? The command, this type of command is about defending the purity of Israel and the sole lordship of Yahweh over his people in the Holy Land. God has always desired a holy people under a holy son in a holy realm. That's what Eden was about. That's what Canaan is about. That's what the new creation is about. God is going to evict all evil from the cosmos. This is a, is a prefigurement, a picture of that. It's a reminder that God hates sin, and it's a foreshadowing of the good and just judgment coming when Christ appears again in glory. You know, Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah says in chapter 61 that when the Messiah, the anointed king comes, right, the one who Saul and David, all the kings point to, he will proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the year of the Lord's grace, and the day of vengeance of our God. It turns out you're not going to be able to have one without the other. He who came to bring the day of God's favor will also, having been judged, having borne vengeance, usher in the day of judgment. So without virtuous, just vengeance, there is no hope for any rectification of any evil or any injustice in the world or any violence. With it, we have this sure and certain hope that God himself is committed to invading a world which has itself been invaded by sin and death and the powers inimical to the good of the creation and to the good of creatures. This is why in heaven itself, the book of Revelation shows the martyrs, the martyrs praying in heaven, before the face of God, and here's what they say. How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? That's how they pray in heaven. So the God who commands this is good. Abraham said the God who is the judge of all the earth will do what is right. And I always, we had some conversations about this the other, the other night with a couple of us, but the comforting thing here for me personally, and I think that the thing to take from this is, you must remember, when it comes to God exacting vengeance and judgment, it is for the restitution and the reconciliation and the healing of the cosmos, and that the one who renders the judgment is the one who has already been judged. Right? There's a great mystery here. It may be beyond us. 
There's a sort of tremendous thick darkness here. But the comfort is this. The wrath of God is always the wrath of the Lamb. And that's good enough for me. In other words, Jesus will sort this out. Now remember, back to our situation, to reiterate, the Amalekites have had 300 years to repent. 300. So Saul gathers his forces. He routes them in a battle in the southern desert region of Israel. But we're told that Saul and the army, no, Saul and the army, spared Agag and the best of the animals. The good and the best they were unwilling to destroy, but everything despised and weak, they totally destroyed. It's a conscious, deliberate act of disobedience, of not listening to the word of God. It's another example of Saul's almost obedience. So that's the vengeance. Eventually, this vengeance gets enacted on the head of the Son of God. The second point, then, is obedience. In verse 10, the word of the Lord comes to Samuel. Samuel still is listening. And it's a shocking word. I want you to try and imagine being Samuel. God says to him, I regret that I've made Saul king. doesn't mean God is fickle. It's an expression of God's passionate involvement with the world, with his people, his ability to show sorrow and grief over our sin. He regrets making Saul king because, the text says, he's turned away and he has not listened. He's not carried out. It's the same word. He's not listened to my instructions. Now, this is an astonishing thing to say. After all of the turmoil over a king and the anointing, and all the supernatural signs that came with inducting Saul into office. And then we're told Samuel was angry. And he cried out to the Lord all night. This is a rare glimpse, by the way, into the personal life of a prophet. You don't get a lot of this in the Bible. The personal turmoil, the cost of Samuel's ministry. A long, tumultuous, sleepless, angry night. Was he, mad? Was he mad at God? Was he mad at Israel? Was he mad at Saul? Probably some combination. He takes no pleasure, certainly, in Saul's failure. But, but think of it in this context. Samuel has spent his whole ministry, his whole adult life, opposing the monarchy. It was God who told him to listen to the voice of the people and give them a king. He wanted nothing to do with it. It was against his better judgment. And now God changes his mind about the deal? Samuel's like a decade or two in, you know, into, into the ministry here. At the end of his life, this would be baffling. God has had Samuel spend so much time guiding and instructing Saul. You can imagine the frustration. Especially if you've ever had had a project where you work and you work and you work on it. And it feels like God himself has given up on the project. 
Have you ever found yourself in that position where you think, Lord, why do I care about this project more than you appear to care about it? That's how Samuel's got to feel right now. What do, you, what do you mean you regret making Saul the king? <laughs> so the nation's in this royal mess, and Samuel's angry. So he goes to meet Saul, who set up a monument for himself because he's a narcissist. Right? And he finally catches up with him. And Saul is lighthearted and cheerful. He slept fine last night. Saul says to him, the Lord bless you. I've carried out the Lord's instructions. He thinks he's obeyed the command. You said, listen, and I listen. And then we have one of the great sort of riffs, one-liners in Scripture, riffing off this idea of listening. Samuel says, what is this bleeding of sheep that I hear in my ears? And what is this lowing of cattle that I hear? am listening to. These are the animals that were supposed to be put under the ban. Everything was to be destroyed. So Samuel's saying, I'm listening to something, Saul. And what I hear are the sounds of your failure, the sounds of your not listening. I'm listening to the sounds of your not listening. And Saul, he's in the throes of self-delusion. He still thinks he's done what what was asked. He says this. He says this twice in the text, by the way. The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. The the army did it. But we've already been told earlier in the narrative, Saul and the army did it. He's the commander-in-chief. This is pure blame-shifting and rationalization and cowardice. He continues to say, They spared the best of the sheep and the cattle to sacrifice to the Lord. Wonderful. Another pious, good intention. I mean, this is sensible, right? We disobeyed so we could have a wonderful worship service. We've seen this before, right? Saul loves piety. He loves pious jargon and pious action right at the point of his disobedience. It's a form of overcompensation, really. He says this twice in the scene. He says to Samuel, we wanted a sacrifice to the Lord, and I don't even know if he's conscious of this. He says, to the Lord, your God. It's as if he knows he's alienated from God, even as he's protesting his innocence. Such is the deceitfulness of sin. People protest too much. Not finished. Saul continues and he says, but we totally destroyed the rest. This is an amazing piece of reasoning here. You said, totally destroy everything. And after sparing a bunch of stuff, we totally destroyed the rest. What's the problem? The exceptions we made were noble. They were well-intentioned. They had to do with worship and devotion. Now, Samuel's listening to this. Remember, he's angry and he didn't sleep last night. And he says... Enough. Enough. The Lord gave you a command. You didn't obey. You didn't listen. Right? Attentive, detailed listening is thoroughgoing 
Saul, it finishes. Why'd you pounce on the plunder and do this evil? And astonishingly, Saul says again, but I did obey the Lord. I did listen. It's like having a child who you sent in to clean their bedroom and you go in there and half of it's clean and the other half's not and they insist that they did the whole job. That's exactly what Saul is like a child. Look what I've done. Stop focusing on the part I didn't do. He, he says, I went on the mission to destroy the Amalekites and, I, and notice this, he says, he slips this in. And I brought back Agag, their king. Now, if you're Samuel, you're thinking, what? So it's not just the animals that I'm listening to? I guess he figured Samuel will figure this, find this out soon enough. I better tell him that I spared Agag as well. Now it's almost a comedy routine. So you destroyed everything. Yes, totally. What about the animals in Agag? No, I didn't destroy those. But the stuff I destroyed, I totally destroyed it. Totally. Just like you said. So finally, we get Samuel's devastating words, famous words. Verse 22, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying or listening to the Lord? Right? To obey is better than sacrifice. To give heed is better than the fat of rams. Here again, take the word obey out and you can say to listen is better than sacrifice. To listen is better than the fat of rams. All of Saul's rationalizing, this was spared for worship services. Everything is leveled. And Samuel says, listen, God wants obedience, not ritual sacrifices. Now, it's also a shocking thing to say. It can't be a complete rejection of the priestly system of sacrifices. God established that, and it will remain long after this. But it is saying that religious ritual and sacrifices without obedience are a sham. God neither needs nor is he bought off by the fat of rams. He demands that rational creatures listen, obey, and heed. The great uh, Scottish theologian T.F. Torrance used to say that a text like this teaches that the cult, meaning the the sacrificial system of Israel, the offering system, has to be, he would use this phrase, cut into the flesh of Israel. Meaning, what happens to the animal is to happen to the worshiper. The point of the cult is to make you a slain, living, offering of smoke ascending up to God. So that you can never divorce obedience from sacrifice. And since Saul has not assessed himself ruthlessly enough here, Samuel adds this. He says, for rebellion is as the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Now this really drives the point home with a kind of cutting intensity, right? Not listening to Yahweh's voice, Saul, is not an alternative viewpoint or a different take on things. It's like worshiping another god. It's akin to sorcery. 
It's akin to sorcery. Everybody is listening to an array of voices out here. Right? Be careful the ones you wait. Right? The reformers used to say that sacred scripture is the voice of God, and it must be the dominant forming speech that you're hearing. Then the brutal conclusion, because you've rejected the word of the Lord, the Lord has rejected you as king. This is personal rejection now. Saul himself, not just a Saul-eyed dynasty, but Saul himself is rejected. And that brings me to repentance. Saul says, I have sinned. I have violated the Lord's commands and your instructions. Now, that's a pretty good confession. But again, here come the excuses. The mitigating circumstances. I was afraid of the men, and so I gave in to them. They have a little back and forth, and in the midst of it, you know, Saul grabs Samuel's, the hem of his garment, tears it, and Samuel turns this into a parable. It says, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today, and given it to another, who we know is David. So, Twice in a chapter, which mentions God's regretting that he made Saul king, Samuel then says this. So so get this. The beginning of the chapter says God repented or regretted. The last verse is God repented or regretted. In the middle, we get this. The glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind. For he's not a human being that he should change his mind. So two quick things about this. First, stick close to the context. When we do that, we see that this means that the tearing of the kingdom from Saul and the coming establishment of the Davidic monarchy is something about which God is not going to change his mind. It is certain. It is irrevocable. That's the main point of this. The glory of Israel doesn't change his mind, meaning I've torn the kingdom from you and there's going to be no going back on this. But on a deeper level, it means that God repents without repenting. He is not a human being. He doesn't change his mind the way we do. He repents in such a way that his eternal plan is flawlessly executed. Yes, this is mysterious. Or another way to put it is this. There's a sense in which God does repent, and there's another sense in which he doesn't. But the key thing to understand is, and the text highlights this. He's God and not a man. So when, whatever it means to say God repents, it is something he does in his own divine, ineffable, unique way in accordance with his immutable purposes. After all, think about this. Think about this. It was decreed long ago that the kingship would come from the lot to tribe of Judah, not from Saul's tribe of Benjamin. And you want to go back further than that? The Christ, the Davidic king, was slain before the foundation of the world and the eternal plan of God. Right? So there's no question here of God being caught off guard or surprised or saying, oh, I'm going to have to make some real-time adjustments to my plan here. So it's important to see that, but it's all, there's two sides to this, right? One is this eternal mystery of God's plan. The other is the fact that the text says that same God, eternal, sovereign God, is fully responsive, fully involved, fully present, the fully loving one. His repentance is a thing of beauty. 
Because it's rooted in his purposes. Whereas Saul's repentance is half-baked and fraudulent. It springs from his failure to listen. The text expects us to connect Saul's fraudulent repentance with the Lord's lovely repentance. So let me conclude. There's one pointed question. Well, there's probably two or three pointed questions, but I'm going to pick one out that I think the text wants us to be asking. Right? And it's this. Aren't the sacrifices there to make atonement for people who were not obedient? Right? I mean, if obedience is required for sacrifices to be accepted then just who can offer a pure and acceptable sacrifice? You see the dilemma. And thus the text directs us, pushes us forward to Jesus Christ. Speaking the words of our New Testament lesson from Hebrews 10. That's why that's the New Testament lesson. It's a citation from the Psalms placed upon the lips of Jesus as he becomes incarnate. That's what's happening in Hebrews 10. And here's what he says. These are Jesus' own speech, his words. Sacrifices and offerings God has not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. I have come to do your will, O God. Here we have, at long last, the fully obedient Israelite who is and thus can be the true and living sacrifice. Here alone, we have the obedience which is better than sacrifice. And at the same time, is the sacrifice the pure offering we all need? The sacrifice to end all sacrifices. He has made this offering. He alone can make it. Saul can't make it. David can't make it. The priest can't make it. We need not just an offering. We need an obedient offerer. And he's made it so that we can listen and be listeners to the one who's listened for us. And we can obey in the one who has obeyed for us. We heard Jesus in the gospel lesson start the parable of the sower with this word. Listen. Listen. No religious rituals, no offerings can substitute for this living, listening obedience of ours in him who listened for us. So the command given to Saul is still given to us. Listen. Listen to Christ, the listening one, that you might be good soil, accepting the word, bearing fruit 30, 60, and 100-fold. Amen.